Good morning, Four Corners Church. It's a blessing to be here, gathered together this morning with you all. I want to thank Doug. Uh, Doug preached for, uh, for us last Sunday, and just want to thank the Lord for him and his diligence and just the, the amount of time and energy that he spent preparing the sermon for last uh, Sunday and how he uh, came and, and shared the word of God with his people. I want to thank him for pointing us to our great king, our humble and glorious life-giving king as he looked at the triumphal entry in the Gospel of John. It was a blessing to hear that, and uh, I hope you, if you haven't heard that, you'll go back and, and listen to it by podcast. I was away last week at the Shepherds Conference. I'm not sure if you have heard of that. It's uh, at Grace Community Church in Los Angeles. It's uh, the church that John MacArthur has pastored for about five decades now, uh, but it was a gathering of about 5,000 pastors. It's a Incredible event. I think, I forget how many years, I think it's 40 some, maybe 46, 47, even more than that, years that they have been doing the Shepherds Conference. It was 5,000 pastors from all over the United States and from 66 different countries, <clears throat> all coming together for a time of much preaching. I think at the end, uh, MacArthur in his final sermon said there were 15 sermons, 15 hour long sermons in a, in a four day period, and each of those sort of encircled with worship and, and uh, just a, an incredible time of, of, of being challenged and being encouraged. The theme for the conference was faithfulness. What does it mean for a pastor to be faithful and to remain faithful? And uh, as I said before, very encouraging, very challenging time of Bible teaching and worship. So I want to thank you all for uh, providing that time away. One of the key ideas that emerged, and you, as you would expect, from a conference on pastoral faithfulness was what we read in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, where Paul, in a very pithy way, uh, encapsulates all that he means for Timothy to be about. And he says to him, preach the word. That was the message of Paul there at the end of his life to Timothy, his young protege, telling him, this is what it is about. This is what you are to be about, preaching the Word. So in light of that, I just want to now turn your attention to the Word. So if you will, please go with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22. Today we come to one of the most well-known and significant narratives in all of the Bible. If you have been in church throughout your life, this is one that you probably have read many times. And even if not, it's probably one that you've at least heard of. One of the most significant in all of Scripture. The sacrifice of Isaac. Or really could be called the test of Abraham. Uh, really is the big idea. And so the title for today's sermon as we come to this key Pivotal passage in the Bible, in Genesis 22, the title for the sermon this morning is The Climactic Test. And so I just want to explain why I've entitled it that briefly, The Climactic Test. The first reason is because this really is a climax. What we're coming to in Genesis 22 is a climax 
in the story of Abraham that we have been following since chapter 12. We were introduced to Abraham as we've been going through Genesis now for over a year, and we were introduced to Abraham at the very end of chapter 11, or Abram, before God changed his name to Abraham, the father of a multitude. We were introduced to him in chapter 11, and then into chapter 12, we begin to get his story. And we've been following that through all the way from chapter 12 now to chapter 22. And what we have here is a climax of all that's come before. And after chapter 22, the spotlight will move from being on Abraham to being on his son Isaac. Remember I told you at the beginning of this portion of Genesis that we could understand the book of Genesis largely to be, uh, if we were going to give it a title, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the way that the Lord God is referred to throughout the Bible, he, even in the New Testament. That's who he is. He's the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we've seen the God of Abraham, and we get the climax of that today. And then shortly, we're going to see the God of Isaac. We're going to see him working in the life of Isaac, and then the God of Jacob, as we see it begin to pass from Jacob to his 12 Sons, where Genesis will finish. And so we have a climax. But it is also a test. It is a climax. It is a test. The test itself is the climax. The first verse tells us what this chapter is about. It says, After these things, God tested Abraham. So what we are to understand as we come to chapter 12 is that this entire story is itself a test. And just to give you a sense of the significance of this passage, let me just read a few quotes from commentators, just three of them, to give you a little bit of an idea of how significant this passage is. So one commentator, Gordon Wenham, said, No other story in Genesis, indeed in the whole Old Testament, can match the sacrifice of Isaac for its haunting beauty or its theological depth. This is one of the most significant passages in all of the Bible. John Selhammer, another commentator on Genesis, says, Few narratives in Genesis can equal this story in dramatic tension. And then John Calvin, 500 years ago, wrote, If we compare all the other spiritual conflicts... Abraham engaged in with this one event. They are mere shadows. We've seen that in the life of Abraham. We've seen him tested and challenged. And all of that, Calvin says, all of that collectively mere shadows in comparison to what we are going to encounter here in chapter 22. This passage is particularly special to me because it was the first sermon I ever preached. Years ago, 13 years ago, it was the first exposition of a biblical text during a corporate worship service, which is what I would define as a sermon. Maybe that's a little bit too narrow. I had done various, uh, I had done various sort of things prior to that, talking and speaking, you know, and services and topical treatments of things. But this was the first proper sermon that I ever preached was on Genesis chapter 22. During my first year in ministry, my first semester in seminary at 23 years old, this was the first 
experience that I had with preaching the Bible. So it's very special for me to come back to, at this juncture in my own life, to come back to this passage in this way. And I want to just say that there are two major differences between then and now for me as a preacher preaching this this passage, two major differences. First is now I too am a father of a son. You do not read Genesis 22 the same way after you have a child. So you may think, oh yeah, I get it. I feel the weight of this chapter. But you don't. You don't feel the weight of this chapter until you've had a child yourself. And I think particularly the empathy, the way we understand the feelings that Abraham would have had for his son Isaac. Those of us who have children, and even we could say more specifically, those of us fathers who have a son understand what that means. So different in that way, I now am a father. And now also, I've been walking through Abraham's life in detail for several months. When I preached this passage 13 years ago, I preached it just right out of its context. Now, obviously, I had to treat it in its context, and I I don't know how good of a job I did, but I tried to treat it within its context, but simply going back and reading those previous chapters. But we have been walking this path with Abraham now since September. I went back and looked at when we started chapter 12, and that was in September. So since September, we have been, as it were, walking along this dusty trail of pilgrimage with Father Abraham. So in both of those respects, for me personally, as I come to this text now 13 years later, it is quite different. So if you will, please stand with me. For the reading of this momentous text. Genesis chapter 22. This is the word of God. It is perfect and profitable for God's people. And able to make you wise for salvation. Through faith in Christ Jesus. After these things. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy, I and the boy will go over there and worship And come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, 
the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him for now I know That you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things, it was told to Abraham, behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, Buz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Kesed, Hadzo, Pildash, Yidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Reumah, bore Teba, Geham, Tehash, and Meachah. This is the word of the Lord. You can go ahead and be seated. <coughs> Incredible passage. Let's pray and ask for God to show us what's here for us and um, that he would make us doers of the word and not just hearers of what we're going to encounter here. Let's pray. Father, you are our Father through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We come before you with great boldness. Father, we do not always feel bold. We do not always feel close to you. We, f- we feel all sorts of ways, God, and we recognize the frailty of our emotions. We recognize the frailty of our circumstances, and we are often tired and encumbered, and our circumstances are heavy, and our eyes are turned downward rather than upward. But Father, we are assured this morning That through Christ, your Son, your only beloved Son, we are made your children and we can approach you boldly. So, Father, we come before you now. We know, we know, God, that you listen. 
You hear us even now. And we pray that such a weighty, wondrous passage as this would sit heavy on our hearts, that you would cause it by your Holy Spirit, as you promised to do, that you would cause it to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, that you would cause it to teach us and reprove us and train us in righteousness, that you would show us our own hearts, expose the sin in our lives and the idols in our hearts, and Father, that you would rip those out of us by your grace, by your Spirit, that we would by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body, as Paul says. Father, that we would abstain from fleshly passions that wage war against our very souls, as Peter says. Father, we pray that you would forgive us of our sins, that you would cleanse us now, that you would cleanse our consciences, that we would be humble before you and submit our our lives to your word. Father, we know now that as we come to your word, you speak. We do not need a voice from heaven. We do not need tingly feelings. We need only hear the word of the living God. And so we come. We ask you to speak into our hearts through your sufficient scripture. And through that, that we would be changed into the image of your precious son, the Lord Jesus. God be with us now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So our focus this morning falls on three things, and you can look at the bulletin there to find the outline. And these are really, as I say often, these are ways for us to crack open the text and just get into it and remember the content and explore what is here. But three things that we need to see. First, the command. Second, the conduct. Third, the character. And there's so much in this passage that, yes, we're going to have to do part one today, and we will finish it up, I hope, next week. So today we will look at the command and the conduct, and next week we will pick up in verse 11 with the character. We have the command of God, the conduct of the man, and then we have the character of God there made clear at the end of, uh, of this passage, at the end of this chapter. So let's look first at the command. <coughs> so much here. Let's look, ver- let's look at verses 1 to 2 again in detail. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. As we read these words, we are reminded of God's first call to Abraham Way back in chapter 12, verse 1. And it's fascinating, isn't it? That as we come to this climax, it's really like the closing of a parenthesis. We have the beginning at chapter 12 where God issues a call to Abram to to go and to obey in this very uh, serious way. And then we get at the end of Abram's story, really, here in chapter 22, the very same thing. So chapter 12, verse 1, we have this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So Abraham's life throughout has been marked by sacrificial trust from the very beginning. We talked when we looked at chapter 12 about how it would not have been easy for Abram to leave everything he was familiar with, to leave his family, to leave his his household, to leave his friends, 
to leave the stability and structure economically and socially that he would have had to go to a place that God did not even tell him about. God just said, go, just set out on the road. And as you do that, I will make clear to you where it is. And we know that that as Abram came down into Canaan, that God began to reveal to him that it would be this land that he would settle him in, and it would be this land that he would ultimately give to him and his descendants in perpetuity to his offspring. So we see that Abram, Abraham has had to trust God in this sacrificial way since the beginning, being willing to let go of what he holds dear in complete submission to the call of God. Let me say that again. Being willing to let go of what he holds dear in complete submission to God. Let me tell you this. If your understanding of the Christian life is anything other than that, you don't understand Christianity. Because that is Christianity. There's no other type. There's no category called carnal Christianity. There's no Christianity that exists that is true Christianity in which we do not let go of all that we hold dear in complete submission to the word of God. That's what it means to be a Christian. To not do that is to show, as John says, those who belong to Christ have ceased sinning. Do not continue in a pattern of sin to continue in a way that demonstrates that one is not completely submitted to God is to show oneself not to be a Christian. And let me say this to you, no matter how many religious experiences you've had, no matter how many prayers you've prayed, this is what it means to be a Christian. Jesus says that the one who turns back is not worthy of him. Jesus says that the one who does not hate Even his very life will not be, cannot be my disciple. That's the call of Jesus. Not just on missionaries who go to India and China and Indonesia. Not just to people who go to seminary and become vocational ministers or whatever. But to every single person who thinks he or she is going to heaven. To every single person who says, I am a Christian. This is. Is what it means. So here, God issues a command to Abraham that is a test. It is a test. Abraham does not know it is a test or it wouldn't be a test. It's not a test if you know it is a test. But we know as the readers that it is in fact a test. And the author wants us to know this from the very beginning. God is not the one who has us sacrifice our children. I was talking with somebody recently, and it's amazing. I've said this before, that throughout the Old Testament, the prophets are attacking the pagan practices surrounding the people of God because child sacrifice, can you believe it? Child sacrifice was a common part of pagan religion in the ancient world, that people would would actually have children and kill them as an offering to their false demonic gods. And that's precisely what we see today. Child sacrifice has not ceased to exist. As Ken Ham says, we just see in abortion the sacrifice of our children to the God of self. These things just get recycled. They change form, but it's the same 
demonic idolatry today as there was then. So we recognize the reader is, is made aware at the very beginning, look, this is a test. And I think there are three things that we need to notice about this command or this test. Three things that I want you to see at this stage. And here they are. You can go ahead and write them down in case you don't catch them later. Three things about this test that we need to see. First, the timing. Second, the intimacy. And third, the gravity. As we look at these first two verses, the timing, the intimacy, and the gravity. So first, the timing. Verse one tells us that this test comes, what? After these things. Well, it's very important. You know, we we should always pay attention to the specific language in the text. And we're told that this test comes after these things. After what? Well, there's several things. It comes after a similar, smaller test with Ishmael. Remember, Abraham has already had to suffer the emotional anguish of having to give up a child. Remember, Ishmael was born according to the flesh, as Paul will later say. Uh, He's not the child of promise. He's the child of human ingenuity, of human self-reliance. And Ishmael comes as a result of Abraham taking Sarah's uh, bondservant, Sarah's maidservant, and having a child with her. And God tells Abraham that he's going to bless Ishmael, but God also tells Abraham that he is to let Ishmael go with Hagar, to essentially disown him, to essentially send him away from the family. Why? Because Isaac is the child of promise. And so God has already, in a sense, given a smaller test to Abraham before this major test that we get with Isaac. A smaller test with Ishmael, a larger test with Isaac. What does that tell us? I think it tells us that God prepares us for these kinds of tests. God tests his people. And as we see here with Abraham, God does not just test us out of a vacuum. He doesn't just come to us in the middle of our lives and say, here's a massive test. Boom, throwing it on our shoulders. That's not how God works. He gives us smaller, similar tests to prepare us to make us ready to endure the larger, more significant tests. So it's after that. It's also after this test also comes after a period of stability and security. We've talked about this over the last few weeks. But remember in chapter 21, chapter 21 is really a wonderful chapter in many ways. Yes, Abraham has to part ways with Ishmael, his son. But God promises that he will protect Ishmael. He will prosper him. It's chapter 21. We have the birth of Isaac. Abraham has been waiting for the birth of Isaac for over 20 years. And finally, Isaac is born. And then at the end of chapter 21, we get this interesting story where uh, this local king comes to Abraham and says, Look, I want to make a peace with you. I can tell that God is with you. And I want to make sure that we have peace so that you treat my future descendants with kindness. And so Abraham has peace and stability and ownership of this well in the land. So what's going on here? This test comes at a time when it would have been very tempting. Hear this. This is so important for understanding the Christian life. This test comes at a time when it would have been very tempting for Abraham to cling to earthly blessings and earthly comforts and earthly prosperity. This is a time 
of becoming settled. We've all seen this in the Christian life. It's those times when life is all over the place. Life is hard. Life is shaken. That we cling to God very naturally. We go to him. We go, God, I need you. I need you. But then when life gets kind of steady and stable and peaceful and there's plenty of money in the bank and everyone's getting along and haven't had a cough or a sniffle in a while, things are just moving in a great direction. The future looks so hopeful. We just sort of nestle in to a little seed of worldliness. That's what we do. Our father is too gracious to let that happen. So what does he do? He tests us by pulling us away from a kind of selfish, idolatrous worldliness. He pulls us away and refocuses us through tests on himself. That is how God works with his people. So it comes after that. It also comes after God has heaped up a mound of faithfulness under Abraham's feet. If we, when we come to chapter 22, this is the way visually that I want you to see Abraham. It is as if Abraham is standing on this massive, imagine a massive dirt pile. He's, he's standing on top of this massive pile of God's faithfulness. Everything we've been, we've been reading since chapter 12, we've seen God provide for him. God promise him. God protect him. Faithfulness, faithfulness, faithfulness just packed in to this big mound. And then God takes Abraham and puts him on top of it. It's after all of that that God tests him. What does that tell us? It tells us that God does not test us without a firm basis for trust. Do you see all of this right here? That God does not test us haphazardly. He tests us as a father, giving us little tests preceding the big test, showing us his faithfulness over and over and over again so that we'll be ready to trust in the hour of trial and pulling us, dragging us away from worldly idolatry. Maybe that's how you need to think about what's going on in your life right now. Second, we see the intimacy, the timing, and now we see the intimacy. What do I mean by that? Well, with just a few words, the text shows us the intimate relationship that exists between Abraham and the Lord. You feel it, really, don't you? You feel it when you read these verses. God reveals himself clearly to Abraham. Abraham has no doubt who is speaking to him. I mean, get that point. That's very clear. It's very important that God speaks to him clearly as the Lord. He has heard from God many times. God has appeared to him many times. It is no doubt. God leaves no doubt, especially given the request. He leaves no doubt in Abraham's mind who is speaking to him. We also see that God calls him by name. The name that he himself gave him. God named him Abraham, the father of a multitude. Keep that in mind. Here is God. Listen, listen. Here is God calling him the father of a multitude and asking him to go and sacrifice the only means by which he will have a multitude. Do you see that? God is already filling his heart with faith even by calling out his name, Abraham. And Abraham responds, here I am. Incredible. Literally, behold me. Behold me. 
He is presented as one who lives always before God's face, waiting to hear from him, ready to receive his word. This is a man who lives, as I said before, quorum Deo, before the face of God. Here I am. God speaks. Yes, I hear you. Ready to, to hear at a moment's notice. So we see the timing. We see the intimacy, this relationship between God and Abraham. And by the way, that tells us that God does not test us outside of relationship. God is not just some distant deity that's throwing down tests on people and watching them squirm. That's not God. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is an intimate lover of souls. And he's there with him, encouraging him in the intimacy of this relationship. So we see the timing, the intimacy, and thirdly, we see the gravity. The gravity. Of course, the most obvious feature of this command is the gravity of what God tells Abraham to do, to sacrifice his own son. And God wants to make this very clear, what he's asking Abraham to do. This is very important when you look at the language. God piles up the language to drive that point home in Abraham's mind. So look at the language here. Four expressions to make clear to this man what he's asking him to do. He says, your son. Then he says, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Isaac. Four expressions to make clear to Abraham the gravity of what he's asking him to do. At this point, Ishmael is, for all intents and purposes, no longer a son of Abraham. Now, Ishmael will reappear at Abraham's death. And you see this beautiful scene where Ishmael comes back into the picture and Isaac and Ishmael together bury their father. And we'll see that later on. But for all intents and purposes, Ishmael has been sent away. So Isaac can be called the only son. Isaac is the only son. He's the beloved son and he is the son of promise. We could say it this way. Isaac encapsulates Abraham's heart. And his hope. Do you see that? His heart and his hope. All of Abraham's heart, his, his emotional, his, his love, his, his passion for his son, this precious son whom God has given him through his wife Sarah, all bound up in this boy and his hope of all of God's promises, all bound up in this boy. And God is telling Abraham, That he must sacrifice him as a burnt offering. Just let that fall on you. He is to go to the land of Moriah. And God will show him which mountain. 2 Chronicles 3.1 says that Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. So where is it that Abraham will go to sacrifice his son Isaac? He will go to the future site of the temple. Which is where the sacrifices will happen. Which is near Calvary where Christ himself would be sacrificed as the Lamb of God. So what does Abraham do? Wow. What would you do? What would I do? What does Abraham do? Let me ask it this way. What is the conduct 
of the man in response to the command of his God. So let's look. Let's look at the conduct. Verses 3 to 10. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, to his father Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar. Isaac is probably a teenager at this point. He's bound and laid on the altar. No fight. We'll talk more about that later. Laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. It's a hard passage to read for different reasons. Hard to read like what we read with Lot and his two daughters. Hard to read for a parent. Strange, dark. This in different ways. Hard to read for a parent, for a father. What is a test in biblical terms? Isn't that a question that we have to ask at this point? I mean, what is a test according to the Bible? How does the Bible explain the nature of God's testing of his people? Before we consider the conduct of Abraham, we need to ask the question, what is God testing? What is God after? Why tests in the Bible? If you look at this idea throughout the Bible, one of the main ideas we find is that testing exposes the heart. Deuteronomy 8.2 says to know that testing is for the purpose of knowing what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So God tests his people to expose before heaven and before earth the heart. The test cracks open the life and exposes the heart. There is so much nominal Christianity in our world today. And maybe it's even a part of your life where people go through, the, go through life saying, I'm a Christian. And then the test comes, boom, and they shatter. The heart is empty of worship of God. The heart is empty of true love for God. The heart is empty of affections for God that bear the fruit of righteousness and obedience. The heart is empty. It's all a shell. It's all hypocrisy. It's all inherited from mom and dad. It's all a part of Bible Belt culture, but not in the heart. And that's what testing does. It exposes the heart. And as Deuteronomy 8.16 says, testing is for the good of God's people, that he might humble you and test you 
to do you good in the end. Listen to this. We are not mere pawns. God is not just some chess player up in heaven moving us about for his own purposes in a way that causes us, causes us gratuitous harm. Just up in heaven, standing there, just moving us about for no great reason or with no great care. That's not the God of the Bible. We are not mere pawns. God is testing us for our good. That's the objective. That's the objective of glory. God's glory is in our good in his presence worshiping him. That's why we get something like desiring God ministries. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God receives glory when his people cling to him and love him and worship him forever. So our good is always at the heart of God's own pursuit of his glory. These things are together. We are not mere pawns. So what is Abraham's response to this test? Well, we've already, we already have a clue from verse 2. He says, here I am. Before we've gotten into any of his conduct, we haven't read, before we get to anything from verse 3 or later, we hear these words from Abraham, here I am. This is the posture of his heart. A readiness to receive God's word. Let me say it this way. Everything that we just read a moment ago, everything after verse 2 flows out of, hear this, flows out of what we read in verse 2. In other words, obedience begins here with a readiness to receive God's word. You ask the question, why is it that I'm lost in disobedience and rebellion against God. Maybe you are here this morning and you're a Christian and you recognize that you are not obeying the Lord right now in your intentions or in what it is that you're doing in your life. You recognize that is the case even right now as I'm speaking. Why is that? Why is it that you're lost in this disobedience? And it is here. It goes back to verse 2. There has in your heart ceased to be a Readiness to receive God's word. When we are ready to receive God's word, quorum Deo, then obedience will flow freely, naturally, organically, out of that kind of heart. So let's look at Abraham's conduct. What does he do in these verses? Once again, I want you to notice three things. And here they are. (coughs) The immediate action... The faithful words and the perseverance to the end. So let's look at each of those. The immediate action first. Abraham does what God says. Notice this. Without delay and with full preparations. I mean, it's amazing when you read verse 2 and then you read verse 3. Sacrifice your only beloved son. So what did Abraham do? Abraham rose early in the morning. He sat on the top. You're like, hold on a second. We need some verses there to sort of explain the anguish and the turmoil. And, and, you know, we could spend a lot of time speculating about what's inside of Abraham's head and what's inside of his heart. But the text is not interested in that. See that? The Holy Spirit who authored this by Moses is not interested in that. He wants you to know one thing right here. He did exactly what God 
told him to do. Once again, this is the mark of a Christian. This is what it means to have faith. The immediate action. Verse 3, Abraham rose early in the morning. We saw this already with Ishmael. It it implies, as you search through that all throughout the Bible, you see that this rising early in the morning, it implies a kind of readiness and quick willingness and resolve to do whatever it is you're going to have to do. So people who have something big to do the next day, they rise early in the morning. And this is what we find throughout the Bible. It's a quick readiness. It is a resolve, a firm resolve to do a weighty thing. And what's interesting is after he rises, this is followed by a flurry of activity. Saddled the donkey, took two servants and Isaac, cut the wood and set off on his way. I mean, Abraham hasn't even had his coffee yet. He's rolling. He's doing all of these things, getting all these things together in obedience to God's word. This is a readiness that issues in right away obedience. You see that? We're seeing so much here about the Christian life. A readiness, here I am, that issues in right away obedience. That's the only way to live the Christian life. Because if there is not a readiness that issues in a right away obedience, if there's gaps, hear this, if there's gaps, Satan will pour temptation into those gaps where there's a disconnect between the hearing and the heart, where there's a disconnect between the heart and the feet, in that gap, it will not remain neutral. It will not remain empty. It will be filled with satanic temptations, worldly, selfish passions and lusts and the rebellion of the heart. There is no neutrality in the human heart and in the life of a person. So we see the immediate action. But secondly, we see the faithful words. Between verses 5 and 10, we get two quotes from Abraham. Now, this is really important. He only speaks twice. Now, think about this for a second. And as you read commentaries and as you hear people preach on this passage, many times people will speculate about all the things Abraham is feeling. And we can go down that road and think through that. And as a father, I've thought a lot about that this week. And if you're a father, you will think about that even now. But it's interesting that The only window that we get into the heart of this man is what he says between verses 5 and 10. He speaks twice. He speaks two times. And that tells us what's in his mind. It tells us what is in his heart. Rock, solid, faith. That's what's inside of this man's heart. Verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Listen to that. He's not just lying. We'll see that in a moment. He's not just making stuff up. He's not just trying to get these guys off of his back so he can go and do this devious thing. These are words of faith. And in verse 8, after Isaac asks him, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Those are the two things that Abraham says in this entire narrative. It tells us what's in his heart. Abraham did not understand all that God would do, but one thing he knew for certain, and listen to this, and one thing he knew for certain, he had heard from God in chapter 21, verse 12, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That's the one thing. I mean, this has to be immensely confusing to Abraham. I mean, he's probably got a ton of questions and doesn't get it at all. But he knows 
one thing, God's promise, and he believes that God cannot lie. The writer of Hebrews gives us insight into Abraham's thinking. If you want to know the psychology of this man, Hebrews eleven nineteen says this. He considered, so what's going on inside of him? He considered that God was able even to raise him, Isaac, from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. In other words, as the writer of Hebrews says, Abraham is so convinced that through Isaac shall your offspring be named. The promise of God is true. He's so convinced of that, that he is certain that even if he must kill his son, though it would be awful, God will raise him from the dead. Because God's already told him. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. As many as the stars of heaven much as the dust of the ground. Whatever God was doing, he would keep his promises. Let me say this to you, Christian. You can know this morning and every day hereafter that no matter what you're going through in your life, no matter what trial you're facing, and no matter how confused you are and frustrated, sometimes the hardest thing about, say, a health issue is not finding out that you have a disease or finding out that you have an issue, but it's living in this unknown. I mean, I've talked to some of you about that. The, the, the period of diagnostics where you're going and you're getting tested and nobody knows what's going on and you're going to this doctor and that doctor and nobody can answer the questions. And things are happening. Maybe there's so many different trials coming at you at one time. You're like, God, what are you doing to me? Confusion, uncertainty. It doesn't make any sense. Just like Abraham, it doesn't make any sense. This is a reminder that we can always trust the promises of God, no matter how confused we may be. And that's exactly what we see here. So we see that. We see the words. We see the actions. And finally, we see the perseverance to the end. The perseverance to the end. So important. It is hard to imagine all of the temptations that Abraham faced to turn back, to question God. But what we see is that he pushed through all of that. Satan is a tempter. That's what he does. Who, how can we even measure the amount of temptation that Abraham faced throughout this period of time from Satan as he is being tested? God tempts no man, James tells us. But God does test. And it's in tests that Satan tempts us to turn our backs on God. Just as he did with Job through his wife. Curse God and die. Oh, your life's miserable. Whoa, are you Job? No. No, Job said. And the same we see here with Abraham. We see this perseverance in three ways. Three major ways. He pushes through. Or really I would call these three points in the narrative where we see his pushing through. The first is the three-day journey. Can you imagine? It's not as though God said to him, tomorrow morning at 6 a.m., I want you to immediately wake up and sacrifice your son Isaac. Now this impulsive flash of obedience. And maybe we've seen that in our lives. You know, we have these impulsive moments of glory where we do something right. We do something good. We do something fitting. We obey God in this moment of passionate glory. But it's when we have to really think on it for a long time and when we have to weigh the, the, the gravity of it and feel the pain of it, it's much harder to do it. 
And this test involves three days of Abraham walking with his son, with his arm around his boy, going to sacrifice him. He could have turned back at any time, but he didn't. He pushes through the naive and trusting question of his precious son. I mean, all of us as fathers recognize we would have crumbled. I would have crumbled at verse 7. My father, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? We just crumble. That's not what happens. He pushes through that too. And then, at the end, he pushes through to the act itself. Verses 9 and 10, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. There is absolutely no hint of hesitation. He doesn't get all the way to the end and then look up to heaven. Really, God? You really want me to do this? I mean, I walked here for three days. God's going to stop me. He's going to stop me. He's going to stop me. He gets there. He, his son asks him the question. Oh, he gets him up there. He binds him. He puts him on the altar. He's about to do it. Looking up into heaven saying, okay, God, you can stop me now. It's not what happens. He pushes all the way through to the act itself. And the intensity of the words from the angel of the Lord show that Abraham was about to do it. Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He stopped him. Stop, stop, stop. He was going to do it. No hesitation. Kent Hughes humorously comments, there was, never was there a more welcome voice, for sure, than that voice of that angel. Can, you can imagine the joy of Abraham, who as he's about to have to do this awful thing, he hears the voice of the angel of the Lord, God himself, speaking to him. Stop. So if testing, as we finish up this morning, if testing is meant to expose the heart, what does this test expose about Abraham, the father of faith? What does it reveal about his heart? The most important clues come from what God says to him later. Verse 12, Now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then in verse 16, Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. Verse 18, Because you have obeyed my voice. And there are several things here that I just want to draw out about Abraham's heart. I want you to see what is going on. We've got all this conduct here. Where's this coming from? What is going on in Abraham's actions? I want you to see these things. <clears throat> he offers not part, but all. Not the least, but the best. There was nothing in Abraham's life more precious in which he had invested more hope than this son. He offers him the very best, not a part of himself. And maybe this is your understanding of Christianity. God, you can get all this and all this and all this, but this over here is mine. No, God has all or none. And Abraham says, you can have all of me, my very most precious best. We see that he values the giver over the gift. We love God's blessings. We love our children. We love our jobs, maybe, maybe. Love our, our homes. We love our friends. 
We love our lives. We love our enjoyments. We love all the things that God has given us. But do we love those things more than the giver? Are we just pagans living for all these things? Oh, God is so good. Thank you, Lord, for all these blessings. Oh, the Lord has blessed me so. I love them. I love these things and these people more than God. Maybe you would never say that with your mouth, but with your heart. We see here a faith that values the giver over the gift. The word is supreme over the will for Abraham. The word supreme over the will. Obedience is measured not by doing what God says when it feels okay or is neutral in our will, but obedience is measured when our will presses hard to go left and God says go right. That's obedience. I want to go this way. And God says, you know, go that way. That is true obedience. When the will is under the word. Finally, this is not a theoretical faith, but a working faith. James 2 makes that clear. The demons have theoretical faith. They don't follow God. They don't trust God, James will say. It's not a theoretical faith. Oh, yeah, I believe. It's not some kind of thing, you know, uh, apologetic thing or intellectual thing. Yeah, I heard William Lane Craig talk about God existing, and I, I believe God exists. It's not merely that. It's trusting this God in obedience. It's a working faith, not a theoretical, intellectual, merely intellectual faith. So let me finally say this. How? How in the world? I mean, I read this passage, and I just think, how? How did Abraham do it? How did this man do this? Such faith. Where does he get such faith and such ability to obey? How? We ask this question about those we greatly respect. We ask this question about the martyrs. You hear of them during the Reformation and even in the early church, clapping their burning hands as they are being burned alive for Christ. How? How, as they are being led to be fed to lions, do they worship Christ? How? Such strength, such courage, such trust and love of God. How? How do they do it? You know, on a much smaller scale, at least compared to what I just said, at this conference I went to, We were looking at pastoral faithfulness, and this also happened to be the 50th year of John MacArthur's ministry. And many of you, I I would imagine, have been blessed by the ministry of John MacArthur, by various things that you have heard, sermons that you have heard, books that you have read. Well, John MacArthur's been the pastor of Grace Community Church for 50 years, and part of what this conference did was not glorify John MacArthur, but the speakers would come up, whether it was Al Mohler or Ligon Duncan or, or whoever would come up, and Sinclair Ferguson, other guys, lots of different speakers would come up and they would say, this is the impact MacArthur's had on my life. His faithfulness. And you ask, how? His humility, his perseverance, his trust in God, his strength of conviction, his care for others, the way that people talk about, he, he's, a, he's a very firm preacher, but the way that people talk about his humility and his kindness and his gentleness pastorally. How? The answer is simply this. The grace of God in the heart of man by the Spirit. Let me say it this way. 
What are we reading about here with the conduct of Abraham? What are we reading about? The glory of God's grace shines in the conduct of his people. And I would even venture this. The glory of God shines far more in this faithful obedience of this man than it does in the brightest star in space. God's glory is seen when a frail child of Adam walks the path of obedient, sacrificial faith. That is where we see the glory of this God. It is not God's primary means to display his glory through the heavens. It is through your heart and your conduct. That is how God wants to display his glory in the earth. As we close, all of these graces were purchased by the sacrificial substitute. The sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. All of this purchased by Christ. And we will see next week that all of this story, as we see this interaction between father and son, between father who is going to sacrifice his son and between son who is willing to go to the sacrifice, we are seeing here a picture of the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. God did provide the lamb. It was his own son. We'll see that next week. The glory of God, the glory of his grace shines in the conduct of his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. We thank you for what Christ purchased through his death. We know, Father, that Abraham's obedience, his faith, his resolve... His sacrificial heart, all of this purchased by Christ on the cross and given to him in the past. Father, what an amazing thing to consider that every good deed we will ever do was purchased at the cross. What an amazing thing to consider that all the faith that we will ever have and the resolve even to, if must be, endure the flames for your name's sake. All of that purchased for us by Christ. And that his spirit empowers us and imparts to us such faith, such obedience, such righteousness of life. Father, we praise you for the glory that you show through the lives of your people. Would you do that through us? In Jesus' name, amen.